So now I was going to transition to our message this morning, and I think it is officially like a mini-series now. This is the fifth sermon on God's sovereign election, and so it's like a series within a series. I'm not going to apologize for it. It I it's so it's so essential to understand and grasp as we talk about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God for his people, to know this, that he's sovereign in his election. None of us deserves anything but wrath and judgment, yet he's pleased to give those whom he will life and grace and mercy. And I and I do want to say, this is going to be the last one this morning. I'm not even going to say Lord willing, because this is the fifth one next week. We're going to start chapter 10. <laughs> Lord willing. No, um, I still have to say it. <laughs> But I have been so, um, and I didn't plan this, like, for it to kind of turn out the way it has, but I am thankful for your participation in it, because I know most of you here are convinced of this beautiful doctrine, and you see it as difficult as it may be, you see it, you understand it, and you are just refreshed and, you know, renewed by it, and that's good. Some of you are kind of maybe semi-convinced by it, questions about it, but you've been receptive to it, and and I would just encourage you, go back and and Check out the beginning of this little mini-series on election as, as it comes together. And even for the, the few of you in this congregation that are just really struggling with it, I do want to just just I so much appreciate your spirit. For those in that place, you've had such a wonderful, teachable spirit. You're wrestling with it, even though if you're not, even though you may not be fully convinced of it. So I do appreciate that. And that's so important, the Christian. Uh, life and in, in the life of the church that we do these things even when we don't fully grasp get even disagree we do it with charity and love so I do appreciate that now having said all that well we're gonna come into another uh kind of paul just the, the topping on the on the on the ice cream the cherry on on top of the doctrine of election this morning so we're going to start our old testament reading in is isaiah i'm going to ask you to please turn back to isaiah chapter 44 we'll begin in verse 9 and then we'll go to Romans 9, and just because this is the fifth sermon on this, the last sermon, we'll read the entire chapter just to get that overall context. So Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works with it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water, and he is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. 
He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Amen. Now over to Romans chapter 9. And we will just read the entire chapter instead of break, trying to break it up, break it up. God's sovereign choice is the heading. This deals with the sovereign election. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promise promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you'll say, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Even us he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people." 
and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law that would that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written, Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And thus ends the reading of the word of God. Thank you as I got through that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us and in our hearts and in our lives and our minds. Enlighten our minds, Lord. Help us to engage in our hearts to understand thy precious word, to know your teaching, to grasp your sovereignty and to rest in that, to love that, Lord God. And then to live in light of that and what we have and who we are and what we've been given, the privilege we have in Jesus Christ to live for him, to die for him, to be all, to give all unto him. So bless this time, bless this message. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just as we wrap this up or we come to the end, remember, Paul just dealt with the two biggest, most natural objections that people would have against this doctrine of election, right? The two big things. It's not fair. How can that be fair? And what about my free will? Don't I have the opportunity to choose? Of course, there's overlap with both of them. He explains both, um, uh, like how, how Israel can reject him, you know, how most would not come to believe in him. You know, so they're going to say it's not fair. And, you know, what about my free will? So he's teaching that doctrine of election. Now, as he comes to the end of this section or this chapter, he reinforces what he's been teaching all along regarding election. And listen, this is really important for us. And this makes a strong, strong case for it. The idea is sovereign election. God's sovereign election explains why Gentiles, he says here, people that you would not necessarily expect to trust in the Lord to be saved, actually were saved. And then conversely, we see why those you might expect, you know, these were people to have all the advantages. They were raised in this kind of uh, ethos and so forth. You might expect to be saved were not saved. That really could be only explained by sovereign election, God's grace. Why would somebody who has nothing to do with them want something to do with him? And why would those who have everything, have so much that teach us about him, not go to him, right? That's it, that behind that, and what Paul's teaching here is his election. Last week, we talked about the riches of his glory, man. Salvation primarily, it's primary among those riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And that salvation extends to all kinds of people. It's another purpose in his sovereign election. It extends to all kinds of people. That salvation's not 
confined to one ethnic group. It's not confined to uh, a certain tribe. It's not confined to a geographical area, but it goes from the ends of the earth. That shows that he's God of the earth, God overall. So we see this. This is the, the nature, the essence of the church and will be of God's people continuing on into eternity. Revelation 7, 9 tells us, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, those robes of righteousness, and were holding palm branches in their hands. See, so that's the idea that he is God overall. God's plan to save his people. This is that the teaching of his sovereign election. And it goes all the way back. It stretches all the way back to eternity past, before the world began. It's a way of saying that. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that. He chose us, those who would be saved, in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. When? Before the creation of the world. Before, as we write here, before we were conceived before we could do any right or any wrong or anything like that. We see this doctrine from eternity past. We see it in the first chapters of Genesis. Genesis 3.15. The Lord says, I'll put enmity, as he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike him on the heel. Now, ultimately, we know that's the first preaching of the gospel, proto-evangelion. We understand that. And the rest of the scriptures, an unfolding of this, and we see the ultimate seed of the woman is who? Obviously, it's Christ. He's struck on the heel. He crushes the head of the serpent. The victory is in Jesus Christ. But you know that line of the woman, the seed of the woman, includes not only ultimately Jesus, but all who are his progeny, all who belong to him. So if you're in Christ today, you are the seed of the woman. Everyone else is a seed of the serpent, belong to their father, the devil, in that way, right? So you think about it, Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, Rahab, on and on, right down the line, right down to you and me, are the seed of the woman from eternity, sovereign election, God's grace, his people, Satan's people. There are only two kinds of people in this world. I know you hear that all the time, but this is really, really true. Two kinds, sinners, because we're sinners by nature and by choice, and sinners who are saved by grace. That's it, right? Those are the two kinds of people. And the inclusion of the Gentiles, listen, man, it's not some plan B, right? It's not that God was, well, if Israel would have accepted me, then I would have ushered in the kingdom and everything would be great. But since they didn't, you know, I kind of have to go to plan B now. Now we're going to include the Gentiles. I'm not going to go back to Israel later on. No, it's not like that at all. The inclusive, that's not some plan B or C or D or whatever, but it's the next step in the progression of God's unfolding redemption. It's always been part of his plan. It's always been part of his decree. He's always had his people marked out from before the, the creation of the world. Man, praise God. His redeeming, he's redeeming a people near, near and far, showing, demonstrating, and proving. And get that, understand that, near, far, different diverse backgrounds, different places, coming to him, one one faith. We all believe in Christ, right? We all have the same faith in him, one Savior, one Lord. 
He is the true God. And I love that about election. Again, it's not just this person here, this group here, kind of confined, but it's everywhere because he is the only God. He is the only Savior. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Nor, there, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Amen and praise God. That's the God whom we proclaim. That's the God whom we love. That's the God who loves us. The nations had their own gods. They had their own deities. So we'll see this in Isaiah. Part of this election, Paul's just putting the putting the capper on it, right? And he says this in verse 24, uh, verse 25, as indeed Hosea says, says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What a wonderful promise of God's gospel going forth and unfolding to all the nations, to all the people in this world, to the pagans. And here's what you need to know about the pagans, man. And, and well, first of all, with salvation, it doesn't depend. Again, I'm just stressing this. It doesn't depend on and is not about ethnicity. It's not about heritage. It's not about religious traditions. It's not about works, but it's based on God who saves alone. Amen and praise God. These people that he's talking about in Hosea, these people, the, the, the Gentiles. So you had the Jews, God's chosen, and then the Gentiles, Everybody else, right? And he's saying, they, they're going to be called my, they're not my people, they're going to be called my people. Now, insofar it would de- as it would depend on them, on the nations, they would have no desire to go after. Before you were a Christian, you had no desire really to know the God of the Bible, right? To, to, to truly know him and to truly trust him until he began to work in you. It was like that with the nations. They, they were, they didn't pursue God. They didn't pursue Israel's God. They didn't pursue Jehovah. They weren't searching for him somehow. Oh, I want to find the real God. There's got to be another God, not all these deities around me. No, they didn't long for him the way we long for him when he puts his love in us. We long for the true and living God and reject the false gods. The pagans were content to worship and serve their own deities all around Israel, all those people. You're not my people. You will be called my people only by his grace through his sovereign election, the ones that he would call out. See, these people, they they had their own gods. They could see their gods. They could touch their gods. They could make their gods, as we read in Isaiah. And there's something to that. We love that when we're able, because that, that puts us into control, that they're the gods of our own imagination, the gods that we want. We exalt them and we look for things from them, but ultimately, they're idols of the heart. That's where they come from. That's where they begin. But see, you could touch it. Touch, you know what I mean, uh, the, the idols there. You, you could see them. These are the gods that allowed them to live as they would so long as they paid homage to them. That's what the pagan nations did what they did. They weren't wonderful, lovely, law and order nations. Of course, they had some things. You always have to borrow from Christianity. You always have to borrow from Scripture to have some kind of order. But by and large, these people did what they wanted to do. Just like when God was removed from Israel, people did what was right in their own eyes, right? So that they weren't longing for God and His rules and His regulations and His, you know, to, to worship, to worship Him. They would offer sacrifice in their twisted way to, to these gods that they made. And sometimes, oftentimes, they would offer the, the 
heinous kind of sacrifices, in many cases their own children, to get what they wanted from these gods, to appease these gods, to satiate these gods, to satisfy their anger, and to bring some sort of blessing. That They were happy like that. Because if I just do this, and this, hopefully this God will come down in this way and help me, and I'm kind of in control of that because here's what I'm doing in order to maybe manipulate that God or hope that that God will change. And here's what sacrifice I'll bring. So I get favor from that particular God. So from sun gods to sex gods, you serve them in hopes of staving off wrath, Right? I don't want to get in trouble with that God, but then also gaining some sort of blessing, ease, pleasure, success. That's what it was. They weren't looking for the true God. So when, so does it, when you read this, when he says, I'm going to call these people my people, they're not my, they weren't my people, but they're my beloved. He has his people in those places everywhere. Because you know this is the this is the pattern. If it's not Christianity, if it's not the God of the Bible, then every way to that deity, to that higher place, whatever, depends on you. And it's something you do. It's continually, continually work in order to win. Right? You work in order to win. I'm going to do my best, try my hardest in order to gain favor or to stay in the good graces at least of this person, this deity, this thing that I'm serving. It's give to gain. I have to give. I'm giving myself. I'm, I'm giving my life over in order to merit, in order to build up cachet. So I can look at you and say, oh, you've, okay, you've done enough. You've, you've checked the boxes. We give to gain. We serve in order to secure some sort of blessing. Do you see, see what's happening? These are the, the, the false gods. These are the people. So if you're from a Jewish perspective, how could you, those pagans over there, they're not, they're, this is what they're doing. They're not looking to true God, serve in order to secure some sort of blessing and then strive, strive in the hopes of gaining, gaining salvation or avoiding, avoiding wrath from this God. It's not too much different today, is it? We might not have the wood night, although that's coming back, you know, what was that place in, oh, in the desert where the flood came and they had the big God there, God that they... Burning Man, okay. And, it, and more and more, you're seeing these statues and deities, really, of, of Baals coming back in different places, even in our society. That's another sermon for another time. But nevertheless, um, we don't look exactly like they did back at this time. But the idea is, and here it is, and this is under, very important to understand, that we keep looking to ourselves and how we can make ourselves acceptable to that God that's out there, to that God that's up there. That's part of the, the workspace. We always think, oh, we're looking for something outside. No, no, no. We're looking inside ourselves, constructing that God and learning, like seeking to please that God in order to gain something from that or avoid something from that. It's actually very, very idolatrous, but superstitious as well in so many ways. Because ultimately we're fashioning, like in Isaiah, he said, you fashion them after your own image, after man or animals, you know, that, that kind of thing. Romans 1 speaks to the same kind of thing as we worship creation. So the last thing that they're doing is searching for the true and living God. It's the last thing people are doing. That's the last thing people are doing today. How do you know? How do I know that? Go ahead, go preach the gospel to people. And then you're going to see the last deity, the, the, the last thing they're pursuing is a relationship with the true and living God. And yet he says, I'm going to call a people who are not my own. They're going to be my own. They're not my beloved. They're going to love me because I place my love and mercy upon them because I've called them because I've elected them and they're coming to me. So go ahead. Preach the real gospel to people. When, when you start getting into the, 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 the essence of the gospel and, and you say, look, we're sinners. 
How are most people going to react to that, especially in this day and age? <laughs> Who likes to be called a sinner? Me, a sinner? Are you kidding? I'm a good person. My mommy and daddy told me I'm the best person in the world. Everything revolves around me. Everything, I'm great. Don't say that about me. Tell a little kid to sit down today. They go crying, you know. It's, oh, they told me to sit down and I can't run around and do what I want. They're exalted in, in that way. So, so you try to tell them that they're sinners. That's not going to sit well, right? You try to tell them that there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation. You do that. And then you're going to see, you're going to see that they're not searching for the true and living God. They're actually rejecting the true and living God because the true gospel says there's nothing you can do. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough to, to earn salvation. People don't like that because we want to kind of control that outcome or that aspect, don't we? Tell them they need to repent. Why do you think so many lame churches, and I say that cautiously, lame churches fail to to talk about repentance, and they'll just say, oh, feel sorry for your sin. Feel sorry for your mistakes. I don't say sin either. (laughs) Feel sorry for your bad choices. Tell God you made mistakes. Instead of saying, no, here's what the Bible teaches, that you must repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell people to repent and they're not that you're going to see that. Tell them they need to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, not their own whims, ways, their own will. Tell them they have to put that stuff aside and follow Christ. And you're going to see that they're not searching for the true God. They're not a people of God. And yet he's going to call them his people. The only thing that explains this is sovereign election because we're not looking. People are content with that way of living until or unless he intervenes. The promise is that he would reveal himself to a people who were not seeking him. They're not looking for him. It was true then, it's true today. If you're a Christian, you know in your heart of hearts, as you look back, that that you weren't looking for him, but he found you. You were running away from him, but he draws you to himself. You were separated. He brought you close. Now, we're also getting into like irresistible grace right now. And also, uh, he keeps us a, a assurance of a perseverance in that way. But you see, these are unexpected ones. The unexpected ones need to receive grace. And the only thing that r- explains that is God's sovereign election. As those who are elected by God, as the gospel is preached, as the gospel is taught, they're, they're receptive by the Holy Spirit. He uses these means. They understand. They come out of those nations. They come out of those places. You weren't a people. You're going to be called my people. You weren't my beloved. You're going to be my beloved. You're called my beloved. Do you understand that? Paul is pushing that home. Sovereign election is the way to go. It's the key to everything. It explains so much. It helps us understand even the difficulties of why... Some believe and some do not believe. Why some are chosen, why others are not. So those are the unexpected ones. Well, what about the expected ones? Look at verse 27 through 32. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel, the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Well, how do you explain that? Only a remnant. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. If the Lord had not intervened, if the Lord had not chosen us, we never would have chosen him. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah under God's judgment in that way. Then he goes on, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith? Hmm? 
But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. So, you have unexpected ones, people that you wouldn't, like, why would they believe? Sovereign election proves that. The gospel going forth, his grace, his mercy, all these kinds of things bring those ones to the Lord. At the same time, even the ones you would kind of, I, I say this, like, you know, you kind of might expect to know him, still need grace. <laughs> they still need to be elected, like election, elected within the elect kind of thing, right, of God's people. There, There is that remnant. So not all of Israel is Israel. We've talked about that in past sermons. That's why I'm saying go back and listen to the, the whole series to, to make it come together in that way. Listen, you think... It's easy to say the pagans were not pursuing God. Okay, right? They're not pursuing the God of the Bible. That's fine. But Israel was not pursuing the God of the Bible either. Now you're going to say, what? Are you kidding me? They had all their God's people, right? They're God's chosen ones. They had all the the advantages spiritually in that way. They had the oracles. They had the feasts. They had everything that pointed to God. But as Paul's saying here, they were not pursuing in the correct way or by faith. But... They were pursuing him just like the pagans, but in a different way. But it's still about you and trying to keep something and earn something with God, right? To stave off the wrath and to gain a blessing. That's the same thing with religious people. It just has a religious veneer or the religious garb that covers it. How do we know that? Because it's seen in their rejection, especially, we could see it throughout, their rejection of God, wanting their own king. We can go through the Old Testament and talk about that. But their rejection, especially, is seen in their, the rejection of God, is, is seen in the rejection of Christ in favor for the religious traditions. That's a big, big deal. That's a, that's a huge clue for us. And, and Paul could attest to that, because that's exactly what he did. But you see, what they seem to be doing is pursuing this idea of God and salvation and so forth through rituals, through practices, through efforts of their own, through traditions. And and that, again, that's always going to become a source of pride and then ultimately a source of rejection because you're doing it on your own. You're trying to meet those expectations. You set the bar. This is what you know I'm going to do, do for God. So they were trying to keep the law. We're trying to perform that law. And that's a big trap for very religious people. We always try to keep, right? We always try to do. We always try to earn in that way. And we become legalists down the road if we keep doing that. Well, here's what you do or God's not going to love you. Here's what you do and God will love you. Blah, blah, blah. Go back and forth. We miss grace. We lose grace in that for sure. But they were pursuing it through these rituals, practices, efforts, traditions, which ultimately become a source of pride and rejection. Why? Because we're doing it. And if we're not resting in him, we're going to reject him, right? Just with the religious veneer over us. They weren't broken by the law. And that's what the law should do. When you see the law, when you look at the moral law, you look at the commandments, if you're being driven to Christ, what should you say? What should you see there when it says, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not? What's that teach you? What's that tell you? If you're being drawn to the Lord, I can't do this. I can't. I know my mind, I know my heart, I know my actions. I don't love God. I know the idols that I have in my own heart. I know my lusts. I know how I feel about other people. 
So I'm breaking that law. I'm breaking those commandments in thought, word, and deed every single day. So in actuality, it should be driving me to an end of myself and saying, I can't do this. I can't be good enough. I can't try harder. I'm broken. And that's where the grace comes in because Christ has kept this for us. He kept the law for us. You could see it by their inability to meet the demands of the law, yet trying to do that. And the effects of just mere religion or man's religion is that it always misses Jesus Christ. Every single time. Mark it down. 100% of the time. I don't care if you're religious and been going to church all your life or the pagan on the street, you know, getting wasted right now. You will miss Jesus Christ. Always. The effects of mere religion, of man's religion, means that you will miss him. If you miss him, that means you reject him. It might be very subtle, might be very sophisticated, but you don't have Jesus Christ. And that's a big deal within the church. That's a big deal. That's what you need to, that's why Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. You truly trust in Christ. That's why I said earlier, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Remember the Christ who saved you. Right? They missed him. How do we know? Well, Think of the religious leaders and most of the nation of Israel. Who did they honor? Did they honor Moses? Yeah. Did they honor Abraham? Did they love Father Abraham? Of course, right? Did, did, did they love the prophets? Did they love Isaiah? Yes. The prophet, all, all the prophets. They loved these people of God. And yet, these very ones refused to believe in the one that all these others pointed to. Who do you think Abraham was pointing, Moses was pointing to, the prophets were pointing to? They didn't honor the one that these believers honored, that these ones honored. They didn't love the one that these men loved. So there's there's a disconnect there, right? You can't be sitting here and saying, oh, you know, we we love Abraham, we love Moses, we but not love Jesus Christ because they love Christ. They look to Christ for salvation. They're speaking of Christ. Christ is everything for them. See that? That's where religion, you will miss Christ. So in John chapter 5, Jesus says this, don't think I'm going to accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. We love Moses, but not Jesus. But if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So if you really love Moses, if you really know Moses, then you would love me even more. I'm greater than Moses. Moses loves me. Moses needs me to be saved. So you see what religiosity does to us. It, it diverts us, a veneer, but it takes us off the path of Christ. John 5, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and he was glad. And their response was, you're not even 50 years old. They said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they wanted to stone him because of that. See, they love Father Abraham. Who are you? We have Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham, love me. Abraham, looked for my day. So if you say you love Abraham and you don't love me, you're missing something. It's not right. This is what's going on. This is this is why, if he would have less stuff, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah in that way. Matthew 5, Matthew 15, 7 and 8. And he's 
Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. You can honor Christ with your lips. You could say you're a Christian. You could act, you know, have all the, the trappings of Christianity. But if you don't have Jesus Christ and you're not walking in obedience and you don't love him more than anything else, including yourself, then you do not have him. That's what he's saying here. That's how they missed it. That's how they can miss it if they're not in Christ. This is why election explains that, why the religious do not miss Christ, but truly come to him. Do you know what they did also with the sacrifices? And it would be like for us, just everything that we're supposed to be doing as Christians, reading our Bibles, coming to worship, fellowshipping with one another, praying for each other, being in Christ, all these kinds of things that we're called to do would just become routine, rote, lose their substance, lose their essence, and I, almost even their reason. We just kind of float on by. That's why almost every week we try to encourage you to, to go back and remember that first love. Don't lose that first love of Christ because it's so easy just to get into this pattern. And our life almost becomes a burden. You know, oh, I got to listen to that. Oh, I got to, oh, I need to do my reading today. You know, it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. It should be that anticipation of meeting with your God, taking time to be with the Lord. So, Another way you could tell that the people at this time, the time of Christ, have lost that zeal. And if it was not for his grace, his mercy, his election, there it became routine. You know? Even the sacrifices. When they when they were bringing their sacrifices, among other things, you know what that meant? You know what that should have meant for them? It should it should have recalled to them their their constant need. It should be a constant reminder of their need for forgiveness. That's what that sacrifice represented. So every time they brought a sacrifice, they should have been reminded deeply of their sin and of their need for Savior. That's why I'm bringing this sacrifice to you. They should have been reminded of the hope of a Redeemer to come. There is one who's going to come to make an atoning sacrifice whose blood is going to be shed. So twofold, I'm bringing that sacrifice understanding my need for for salvation from sin, for forgiveness of sin, and also having the hope of the promise of the one who will truly forgive my sins. That's a sacrifice, and among other things, represented that. But you know what they would do? Oftentimes, when the time came time for sacrifice, they would purchase their animals. They would get it the easy way, you know? It's just like, I'm just gonna, like, like, just convenience sake. I'm just gonna, forget it, honey. We're not gonna bring our own. We'll just grab one at, at the store on the way, right? It's like fast food. We're just, forget about making a good meal and bring it. We'll just grab something along the way. Now, this is much more serious than that. What they would do, especially, if they had to come from a distance to go to Jerusalem for a special festival or feast, they wouldn't bring their own animals oftentimes. That would be a hassle. You got to bring them along the way. You got to take care of them. Let's just wait till we get to Jerusalem. We'll go to the temple. We'll buy our own sacrifice and do it there. But it's more, it's not even about the convenience. They were to bring their own sacrifice, their own animal, whether it was a little bird or a pigeon or a, uh, a lamb or a calf, whatever it was, they were to bring their own, the one that they cared for, the one that they protected, the best one, the healthiest ones. I mean, you can think, oh, what's a bird? What's a, like, my daughter has chickens now, and she likes those chickens. Like, they're, they're, they were little chicks, and you've raised them, you bring them along, and there's a sentimentality that comes along with that in some ways. And see, you were supposed to, to, to bring your own in that way, the healthiest one, the one without spot or without blemish. Why? 
to remind you, to remind them of a father who would send, who would give his beloved son to be the true and perfect sacrifice. It's easy to go and get something, buy and bring it. But when it's your own, when you love it, when you raise it, when you're somewhat attached to it, when you're caring for it, and then you have to bring it and give it up, it needs a little bit more. You're giving that to be sacrificed. It points to God. It points to the father giving his beloved son for our sins. But see, we lose that. They lost it. That wasn't about that anymore for them. They were doing it outwardly. They were getting sacrificed. Some people would bring them, but they weren't coming with that spirit, with that knowledge. And that's how they could become hard. And they were pursuing it through their works, through the laws. And we fall into that trap. Those who follow a pattern today of, of just form, like, you know, your pattern. Oh, I have my pattern of life as a Christian. We do certain things. It's form. We do our traditions. May go to church, we know all the lingo, you know, the Christian subculture lingo, we have that down pat, but there's no solid foundation or very little fruit in your life. There's hardly any fruit of Christ. If you're just kind of saying Jesus, but then living the way you live, talking the way you talk, doing the things you do, there's hardly any difference at all than who you were before then you you need to understand, you might not be, that, that's something that these religious people did. They thought they had God, but they didn't. There was no fruit there. There wasn't a solid foundation. You may claim to know Christ, but you still do the things you do, right? The things you want to do in the end. Oh, I love Jesus, but when it comes, when push comes to shove, I'm going to do it my way. Understand? That's a big, big deal. You claim to trust Christ. But at the first hint of trouble, you run to the world for answers and not the word. Oh, this is beyond the Bible. Oh, what can the Bible teach me? Oh, what can the teach people? We need to get the professionals on this one. We need to get the people that understand the cycle. And we, and we quickly, quickly abandon the word of God, the means of God. See, that's, that's religiosity. You're religious on the outside. Oh, I love God and I trust his word, but now I really need help. So I'm going to go to the professionals in that way. Or I'm going to do it myself in that way. That's a big deal. That says a lot about your relationship to the Lord. You claim you're a Christian, but you keep counting on your works for merit and hoping that it's still good enough. Oh, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm, you know, that God loves me and saved, but I don't really know. So I'm going to try harder and do better in that way just to make sure that he really, that I really can know maybe perhaps that he loves me. So you work and you work, but you never really know. See, that's workspace. You need to get rid of that and understand that he loves you. And there's nothing you can do. And the good works you do flow from that. Not trying to keep something or trying to continue to earn anything. If this is you, then you are like these people in Israel. Like the ones, if the Lord of hosts let us, not, had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're trying to attain it not by faith, but by the works of the law. That You fall into that category this morning. So please, if you do, turn to Christ. Look to him. If this is you, though, like these ones in Israel, Jesus, and I'm telling you this, I'm telling you right now, if this is you, then somewhere down the line, Jesus will become a stumbling block to you. Look what he says. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. In Zion, right in that place, in the midst of those people who are supposed to be my people, there's a stumbling stone there. Those who say they know God, they love God, they're looking for Messiah, right? There's a stumbling stone. There's a rock of offense there. Listen, a rock of offense. Here it is. 
If you're not truly in Christ, and I don't care what you say, that I'm a Christian, I do this, I do that. If you're not truly in Christ, in your heart of hearts, you are offended by the gospel. And you are offended by the demands of Christ on your life. That's what he's saying here. I'm a stumbling. And what really is in your heart comes out at that moment and at those times when you are called to fully, completely trust and obey him, but you say, no, that's too much. He's asking too much of me right now. I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not going to. It's going too far for me. It's, it's too much. It's too far. I, no, I can't say that to that person who I love so much. That'll just kill them. That'll just hurt them too much. So I'm going to choose my loyalty to a family member, to a friend, than to Jesus Christ. It happens all the time. It's just too hard to live that way. He wants too much of me. He wants everything he does of you. And if you're not willing to give everything in your life, in your heart, then you're not worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a stumbling block. And you, as much as you say you love him, you're actually offended by him. How could he expect me to do that? How does he have that demand on me? If you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. If you're offended by him, he's going to be offended of by you in that way. We love the prodigal son, don't we? We love the story of the father especially who let that son go. That son gave me my totally disrespected his father. You know the story for the most part. That was something in those days that you did not do. You didn't ask for your inheritance. That would be the height of rebellion and the height of kind of hatred toward a parent in that way. While your parent is still alive, while your father is still alive, to say, give me my inheritance now. That's a complete it's it's like disowning your family. You, know, I, I, you don't accept my lifestyle the way I am, then I hate you, and you're not part of my family. You're not my mother. You're not my father anymore. I have a new family now. That's what it's like. But we love the Father because he gave him that inheritance, and we love the Father because we know, by implication, that he prayed for that son, and we know the love of the Father because when the son was coming back, the Father was coming towards him and accepted him with open arms, and loved him. Now, we love that. But when it comes to us, are we like the Father in that way? Or are we offended? When your kid comes and says to you, if you don't affirm me in every single way, if you don't love the fact that I am transgender, you don't love the fact that I am getting married to a person of the same sex, if you don't accept that, love that, and affirm that, and you don't love me. Now, are you going to be like the Father? He says, take your inheritance and go, and when, when you come to your senses, by God's grace, I'll be here waiting for you? Or do you say, okay, honey, I love you, and I'll walk down that aisle. I love you, and I'll put the flag in my yard. I love you, and I'm not going to confront you with your sin. Right? I'm not going to stand up then you're not like that father because you're offended by Christ. You're offended by the demands of the gospel. It's a rock of offense. That's how you know. So you know there's sin, but you're not going to deal with it in a biblical way. Oh, well, that's okay. They're shacking up together. That's okay. I accept it. They're doing what they're doing, but I don't accept it. I still love you, but that's sin. You need to know that. I'm not going to give in. 
I'm willing to risk that relationship. I'm willing to put that in line for Jesus Christ. Otherwise, he's an offense to you. You're offended by him. You're ashamed by him. That's what the rock of offense means. The merely, even the very, even though you might be very religious, the merely religious and the pagan then are kind of on the same boat. Because deep down, bottom line, end of the day, they're both denying God. They're both coming up with their own ways to get to work so they avoid wrath and gain blessing. Right? That's all. Just shades. Different, different veneer, different ways, but they're in the same boat, ultimately. They'll be in the same place together in hell. Both require grace. And here's the beauty of election. Both of these, the, the pagans who aren't looking for God, the religious ones trying to work their way toward God, both of them require grace. And the only thing that makes sense of that, why a non-religious person would want to leave their way of life, their paganism, and why a very religious person who thinks they're working their way towards God and being good about it in some ways would actually come to the true and living God. The only thing that explains that is God's election, God's mercy, God's grace, that he has chosen you from all eternity. And one day, when that gospel is preached, it makes sense. You see it. My paganism doesn't work. I see it for what it is. My religion doesn't work. I see it for what it is. And it's a stumbling block. It's a, it's a rock of offense in Jesus Christ. Well, then we come to the promise, and here's the, the best news as we come to the end. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen and praise God. That's the good news. If we're believing in him, whether pagan or religious person, we come to him, we will not be put to shame. Amen. There's there's no shame in it. And that's part of the thing. Sometimes we're ashamed of Christ or we're ashamed for being Christians. It's okay what the world thinks of us. It's what Christ thinks of us. And he loves you and he's not ashamed of you and you will not be put to shame by him. He's never going to say to you, if you belong to him, oh, you did a good job, but not quite good enough, right? You could have done a little better over there. It's never like that. He'll never, ever, because we belong to him, we're covered with the blood of Christ and his righteousness. There's never going to be a time when the Lord would say to you, because we know our failures and we know what God should say to us, but if we're truly in him, he will never put us to shame. Never. And we never should be ashamed of him. Now, Having said that, this is grace to all who believe. By implication, you won't be put to shame because God will never, you will never be shamed by him in that way, right? By implication, however, you will be shamed by the non-religious. So if you were non-religious and you came to Christ, what's happened to you over the years? You've been shamed. <laughs> you try, people try to put you to shame. Well, hey, man, what happened to you? You've changed so much. You used to be that cool person. That, remember why we used to do that in the day? And it's not like you just grew up. Or anything. It's like you've really changed, man. What happened to you? you know, you've been, you're so straight-laced now. Our friends will tell us that. I guess that's an old phrase, straight-laced. That's for the older folks here. I don't even know what you would say in the, the younger days, right? You're no fun anymore. You used to be so fun. What what happened to that, you know? Just two weeks ago, we were partying, and now you're, like, reading your Bible all the time. You're weird, right? You're shame. That's it. There's shame there. And then later on, it becomes, man, you become pretty judgmental. You didn't care who slept with who, who was living with who, who did what, and now you're saying that's wrong. Wow, when did you get so judgy? When did you get so holy, right? How'd that happen? 
If you don't accept people just where they're at, the way they are, the way they accept themselves and love them, well, now you're intolerant. Man, how intolerant of you. That's, that's, you know, that's, you're damaging me. That's, you're not affirming me and who I am. You're so intolerant. You're, you're so hypocritical too. I remember, how many of you have heard this still in your life? No matter how long you've been a Christian, people come up to you and say, I remember when. You know, you think you're this, but I remember when you did that and I remember your past. You're a hypocrite. Oh no, you know, we have to explain. But, but see, that's shame. They're going to try to shame you for being a Christian. Get ready. If you're religious, if you were just merely religious, but now you're a true Christian, the religious people are going to try to shame you all the day, all day long, all the time. Right? A lot of us grew up going to church, and and then we're delivered. We're truly saved, and so we're out of that. We're out of that religion. So, what do the religious people say to you? What's what's wrong? Isn't aren't we good enough anymore? Aren't we good enough for you? Right? You used to love this church. You used to be here all the time. Every now, you know. Or I've heard this in my own life. Well, now you've gone too far. You know, it's good to be religious. Everybody has their faith, but you've gone too far, Joey. You know, you're in your life. You're, you're just too much with that stuff. Oh, oh you know, they got to a certain place. That's shaming. They're going to shame you. They'll guilt and shame you to come to your senses. You know, this was good enough for us. Why isn't it good enough for you anymore? What happened to you? Body da. Now you're a big shot. Right? That's shame and guilt. So that's, we can expect that from the world. But he says here, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no shame the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not be disappointed with you if you're truly in him and you stand. The world might be disappointed with you. The religious people might be disappointed with you. At times you might be disappointed in yourself. But if you're truly in Christ, he will not be disappointed. He will say, welcome. A good and faithful servant. For you loved me and you obeyed me. And you trusted me when it was so easy to walk away, to do the easy thing, to serve yourself. But you stayed for me. Well done. Fully accepted, eternally loved. That's it. That's it. Only election explains that. From hostility against God to peace with him, strangers and aliens to sons and daughters, lost to found, blind to seeing, dead to alive, estranged to reconciled, orphaned to adopted, hatred for to being loved by, on the way to hell, having a place in heaven. Two people becoming one. Two people, completely different backgrounds, completely different culture, completely different ethnicity, ethos, whatever. Now we're one in Christ and we see salvation and we love each other as he has loved us and we go out into this world with one heart, one love, one gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the essence. This is the heart of God's sovereign election. Saving both the Jew or the religious person, if you want to put it that way, and the Gentile or the pagan, if you want to put it that way, neither deserving yet both receiving grace, mercy, and love. How? Only God's sovereign love in his election explains.